Today on the podcast, the Dobbs opinion and the impact it's having on healthcare law, corporate law, and even the legal industry itself. We talk about this with the Bloomberg Law reporters who are covering it all. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. A landmark ruling from the Supreme Court represents an ending of sorts, at least for the case at hand. But more often than not, it's just a beginning, raising more questions than it answers. And that's definitely the case with the ruling in Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade and allowed states to ban abortion. We're not even three weeks from when the opinion was handed down, and it's already clear that removing constitutional protections for abortion access is having society-wide impacts. We here at Bloomberg Law have been all over this story, and on today's podcast, I just wanted to highlight some of that reporting by featuring three reporters covering abortion from three different but kind of related angles. Maya Spoto was part of a team that surveyed hundreds of the country's biggest law firms to see which ones are taking a public stand on this, or are at least providing assistance to their attorneys who need abortions. Clara Hudson, meanwhile, has been reporting on shareholder activism on this issue and how a company's stance on abortion affects its ESG credentials. And healthcare reporter Celine Castro-Nuovo is focusing on how new state anti-abortion laws are making it tricky for doctors to prescribe pregnancy termination drugs that have other uses beyond pregnancy termination. We'll get to all of that, but first I started off with Maya. In addition to reporting on Big Law's reaction to all of this, Maya was at the court the day the Dobbs decision was handed down. I asked her, what was that like? Yes, for sure. I am never going to forget it. Uh, I was actually down at the Senate picking up my press pass when we got word that there was increased police activity there. And so me and Madison Alder went down to the court and lo and behold, there were around 30 to 50 police on bikes surrounding the protesters who had been standing outside the court for, I think, most of the back end of this month, just anticipating this decision. And this was before we knew that the decision was coming, but this was a sign that today could be the day. Exactly. These people who were there organizing outside of the court, a lot of them were affiliated with organizations. And so I spoke to some students who had been flown out from Texas to speak. There were many Texas um, youth there around 15 to 25 uh, on the pro-choice side of the aisle. And there were a lot of younger people in the pro-life side of the aisle as well, which I feel doesn't get covered as much. Yeah. So there was a lot of um, a lot of intergenerational mixing going on between the two uh, sides, but they were fairly separated. Yeah. Well, that was the day of, um, and obviously a very memorable day, but we've been doing a lot of reporting on what's happened since then. And Maya, you talked about some of the law firms in so-called big law that have sort of taken a, a stand on the Dobbs opinion since it came out. What did you guys find? Um, how many firms have you know come out there and, and taken a stand and what are they saying? Yeah. So Megan Tribe and I reached out to the entire AmLaw 200 list, which is basically the top 200 law firms ranked by the American lawyer based on their gross revenue. And we found that more than a quarter of the top 100 firms, uh, which generally have offices uh, across the U.S. and many are based in places like Texas, they pledged um, to support people who work for them who need to go out of state to get abortions. So saying they would cover the cost of travel. And these are enormous companies. I mean, they're they're private companies because they're law firms, but they're still huge. Um, and they're, you know, taking a stand on this pretty controversial issue. 
For sure, for sure. There were many who um, asked us not to be on the record or who said, oh, uh, we were looking into this, but, you know, the situation is so up in the air with the state legislators cracking down on travel. And that's now what we're seeing today. Right. That I think that, you know, just we had news just late last week that, you know, Republicans in Texas are now introducing laws that would penalize specifically law firms that, that come out on this. Um, are firms OK with taking this risk? Are they, you know, saying that, you know, the greater good outweighs sort of some penalties we might face in these red states? Or is this something that may cause some of these firms to take a second look at this? Yeah. So I would say that it's really a mixed bag and it might be a little too early to tell. I think one note uh, that I'd like to emphasize is that Justin Wise found that a lot of firms in Texas, including the largest firm, which is Vincent and Elkins, have made these statements saying they will cover travel, but they have over the past couple of years donated large amounts in the order of 60,000 plus to um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who signed the restrictive uh, bill banning abortions into law, and then as well, uh, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. So we're seeing these firms um, making these statements, but also getting caught in the middle where like they're saying one thing and they're donating another thing. And I think that tension might really come out to play when we're seeing them respond to what the Texas lawmakers are saying they'll do. And we're going to get a lot more into that with uh, Clara Hudson. You're reporting on the ESG angle uh, to this. What's happening here? What are uh, companies doing to maintain their ESG rating when it comes to abortion? Basically, in my reporting, I found that companies are being a lot more cautious and careful about what they're saying and what they're actually doing in practice when it comes to abortion access, uh, which was very interesting to think about. So the consultants that I spoke to for this piece said that they're advising companies to really think about what they can do in the long term and how they can be consistent about what they're actually going to do for their employees. But not come out like right away with something just to sort of respond instantaneously. It sounds like they're thinking they're, you know, they're getting advice to to stay cool and kind of think about the long term. Exactly. I think you've seen a lot of statements come out that are fairly neutral. But I think what we're going to be watching for is in the long run, are companies actually putting this into practice? And something else that I noticed that was pretty interesting when I was working on the piece is how companies are coordinating a lot more with one another. So this is, you know, companies have always somewhat talked to each other about social issues, but I think it's something that we're noticing a lot more on particularly controversial topics. So what they're doing is they're talking to one another to make sure that what they say is kind of the same and so that one company isn't really sticking out from the pack. Interesting. You know, there might be some people listening to this, though, who would say, well, ESG, what does that have to do with abortion? ESG is just an environmental thing. And 
honestly, I might have been one of those people, uh, you know, because the E in ESG, environmental, is so uh, emphasized. But it sounds like this is an example of how the S and the G, the social and the governance, are really becoming more important. Is that right? Is, is this um, an example of ESG becoming just more, you know, about more than just climate change and, and environmental impact? Yeah, I think that social and governance issues have always been very important. But I think what this situation has done here is that it's really drawn attention to how important the S and the G are going to be for companies in the future. So it's something that they're really going to have to be paying more attention to on topics like abortion, which are obviously generally pretty controversial And basically, what I've been reporting is that companies, if they're not going to be very thoughtful about what they say and what they do, they're pretty much going to get called out by their employees and by shareholders and just the public generally. So that's definitely something that I think all of us have seen on social media. So in other words, we're sort of way past the days, if we ever were in the days when a company could just sort of put out a press release saying, we bought a bunch of carbon offsets, we're an ESG company, that's that's not going to cut it anymore, it sounds like. Yeah, it's not going to cut it. They need to do more than just a statement. But also, I think it's kind of new that there's almost this requirement, this expectation that companies immediately say something on, you know, like whatever is the issue of the day. And that's a lot of pressure on them to immediately decide what they're going to do in the long run. So they have pressure to act fast, but they need to be thinking long term. So that's uh, that's a bit of a difficulty for them right now. I also want to get at something that Maya uh, talked about, which is that this tension between companies trying, you know, opposing the legislation but supporting the legislator. Um, and that's, you know, something that I think you referenced in your story uh, that happened in with previous anti-gay bills. And now we're seeing that again, where companies are, you know, opposing this anti-abortion legislation, but still continuing to support the lawmakers that crafted it and, and voted for it. Can you talk a little bit about that tension? Is that something that w- will ratchet up in the future? Yeah. So I think companies definitely need to take a closer look at their political spending and really think about where they might be contradicting themselves. So there are some shareholders that are just really not going to stand for companies that, you know, they are talking the talk on abortion access, but that in practice, they're actually funding the opposite. So this is something they're definitely going to need to be paying more attention to. And shareholders and the public are going to be paying more attention to also. Says ESG was already pretty complicated, but now it's going to be even more complicated, basically. Yep, that's the headline. Okay, and Celine, uh, let's move to you. Uh, and I wanted to get to you last because it, you know we've been talking about the what law firms are doing and what companies are doing, but now let's get to the why this matters. You know what, why this is important on the ground. You're working on a story about access to some of the common drugs that are used to terminate pregnancies, and it sounds like it's totally up in the air. There's like mass confusion. What's going on with with these drugs? Yeah. So even before the Dobbs decision, um, there's been this attention to 
mifepristone, um, which is the drug approved by the FDA. But there are certain risk evaluation and mitigation strategies that the FDA has required to be in place because for mifepristone, there's risk of blood clotting or serious risk to um, patients. And so they required manufacturers to oversee that people who prescribe the drug, you know, that they're certified providers, that they consult the patient on the risks of the drug, and that pharmacies are certified to dispense it. So it's already kind of a difficult drug to prescribe to begin Mm -hmm. with, but now states are passing their own laws about who can get access to this drug, who can prescribe. What's going on there? Yeah. So even before the Supreme Court's decision, there's been this you know, tension between what the FDA has said is necessary to make sure the drug is safe and effective and what state laws have put in place. Um, so certain states require that the prescriber be a licensed physician. Certain states also require that this be dip- dispensed in person, even though the FDA recently removed the in-person dispensing requirement and said it's no longer necessary. Um, so there's actually an ongoing case in Mississippi um, from GenBioPro, Gen the generic manufacturer of mifepristone, um, filed a lawsuit in 2020 against Mississippi because they require that, you know, it be a licensed physician that's dispensing this drug. And they have more restrictions that go further than what the FDA has said is necessary. So, you know, attorneys and reproductive health groups are looking to Mississippi and what happens with this case because it could serve as a roadmap for other potential challenges on whether FDA regulations preempt state laws on FDA-approved drugs. So, I mean, this is obviously affecting women, uh, women seeking to terminate their pregnancies, but it's even beyond that because you were reporting on methotrexate, which is another one of these drugs, and it has a lot of off-label uses for people, for things that have nothing to do with uh, terminating a pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how doctors now don't know if they can prescribe this drug? Yeah, so this has been really interesting. So methotrexate, it's used in rheumatology for, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. Um, The Arthritis Foundation says that, you know, 90% of rheumatoid arthritis patients use this drug at some point in their treatment. Um, It's very important in that community for the treatment of pain. Then in gynecology, it's also used for the treatment of ectopic pregnancies as an alternative to the surgical removal of that. So what's happening is certain state laws, because of you know the risks associated with the drug and its use in ectopic pregnancies, certain states consider it an abortion-inducing drug. So that has led to you know cases where pharmacists are unsure if they're going to be fine liable, if they're going to be punished for dispensing this drug, and pr- providers are uncertain if you know they're going to be punished for prescribing it. And so people on social media have started sharing stories of. I can't get my methotrexate refilled for my rheumatoid arthritis because I'm a woman of childbearing age, even though I'm not trying to get pregnant. Um, So, yeah, there's really been this confusion, and it's led to delays in people getting their medication that they've used for a long time for their management of pain. Finally, um, where are we headed here? I mean, do you think this is going to be resolved quickly or slowly? And what I mean by that is, do you think that states that have passed these kind of laws restricting medication abortions will pass follow-up laws to clarify that, you know, here's when you can prescribe it, here's who can use it, uh, here's who can't? Or 
do you see this taking a long time to resolve in the courts uh, where we need to wait for judges rulings or multiple judges rulings to to sort all this out? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that remains to be seen. Um, Certainly, you know, prescribers and patient advocacy groups that I've spoken with, they want they're really calling for, you know, state legislators to pass laws to clarify you can prescribe these drugs if there's not an indication, if it's not being used for an abortion. Um, and to also clarify that, you know, that treatment to remove an ectopic pregnancy is different from another abortion. Um, yeah, so they're really calling on state legislators to do this. And then also state medical boards and pharmacy boards. The Kentucky Board of Pharmacy has already, you know, told pharmacists that if you receive a prescription for a methotrexate or another drug that is considered abortion-inducing, you can assume that it's not being prescribed for an abortion. And so, but not all states have done that. So there's a lot of states where there's still all this uncertainty. So, But it sounds like at least in that state, it might not take another piece of legislation. It can be done at the sort of executive branch level. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So it could be done there. But, you know, there is the possibility that you know, patients in states with abortion bans or other restrictions on abortion, if they can't get drugs for their arthritis um, or other conditions, that, you know, it could take a lawsuit and litigation to kind of resolve these gray areas. Those were the voices of Celine Castro-Nuovo, Clara Hudson, and Maya Spoto. They were talking about reporting on abortion rights. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.